Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Kondik. So, Kyle, you have a new analysis out this week. You've analyzed how the most populous and least populous counties have voted in recent presidential elections, comparing especially the 2012 presidential election to 2020. And this is a continuation of a series that you started earlier this summer comparing counties in key states. Before we dig into your findings, I wonder if you can remind us how you went about constructing the analysis. Yeah, so what we did was we just took all, it's 3,111 counties across the entire country, and that excludes Alaska, which doesn't have, basically doesn't have counties for voting, vote counting purposes, and also the District Columbia. But so we just put them all together, and we basically started adding up from the largest counties downward. So Los Angeles County is by far the largest source of votes in the entire country in California. You just keep adding to it until you get to what the number closest to 50%. So there's 151 counties over 39 different states uh, add up to half the statewide or ha- half the national vote in the 2020 election. So we looked at how those places voted in both 2020 and 2012. And then also the other 2,900 plus counties, how they voted in 2012 and 2020. And that's how we how we did this analysis. And so we had done this for several states in the Midwest and the West and, and the Atlantic coast, but we decided to just do the whole country to, to show how things had changed and where the votes come from. So I think what we'll get in a little bit more deeper, but one of the most striking things is that really that there's been such a concentration of votes into about only 151 counties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and even if you take the same counties in 2012 compared to 2020, they, they're about a, a point and a half more of the national vote than they were just eight years prior. So you can imagine that group of counties would probably continue to, uh, to grow over time and become maybe a little bit more than half of the, uh, half of the national vote. And it's a, again, I think it, it, it just shows to the we always talk about this sort of urban versus rural divide in American life. And yeah, there, of course, there still are plenty of Republican votes in the big cities and there are Democratic votes out of the countryside too. But that distinction, I think, is, or, or the difference has been growing over time. And I think this analysis helps contribute to our understanding of that. Yes, definitely. I wanted to bring up, we've been looking at political geography for a number of years now, but you find that the more populous counties have trended even more Democratic, widening the gulf between 2012 to 2020, and that the least populous counties have become more more Republican. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that and why you think that's happening. We've seen some recent analyses discuss, discussing just the concentration of economic opportunities in urban areas. To what extent have you seen any sort of drivers of these changes? Yeah. If you look at Obama's coalition, he won the top half counties by 19 points. He lost the bottom half counties by 10 and a half. So that's like a roughly 30 point gap uh, in terms of margin between the two groups. You get to Biden in, in 2020. Remember that the national vote is basically the same in both those elections. Obama won by about four in the national popular vote, Biden won by about four and a half. So it's very comparable in terms of the top line number. But the gap between top and bottom for Biden was more like 40 points. 
Biden won the top half by 24. He lost the bottom half by 15. So you could see this sort of expanding out of this gap. I think it's driven by a lot of the rural counties and the small city counties have just gotten redder or some of the places where Democrats used to be strong in, I'd say, like white working class, rural America. A lot of those places have just become flipped from Democratic to Republican, or if they're Republican before, they got a lot more Republican. You could particularly see that in the Midwest. And then a lot of the big suburban counties that are highly educated are oftentimes getting more diverse. Those places have trended toward toward the Democrats. And so some of those kinds of places are represented in the top half counties. So Biden won more of the top half counties than Obama did, but Obama also won a lot more of the bottom half counties than Biden did. So again, you could see this sort of trade-off going on between these two halves of the electorate. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where where the most populous counties are and the most Democratic and the most Republican top half counties and bottom half counties. So of the counties that cast 500,000 or more votes, there's like 46 of those. Biden won 45 of them. Trump only won one of them, which is Suffolk County, which is basically the eastern two thirds of Long Island. And Trump won it by I think it was three one or a point zero three points, so it was really close. Now, in the sort of the top half counties, basically the cutoff between top half and bottom half was two hundred thirty thousand votes, roughly speaking, cast. If you look at the sort of smaller pieces of the of the top half, you could find Trump winning a number of places. There are a lot of counties in Florida that fit that definition. Part of the reason why Florida is trended more Republican is that there are these big sources of votes there that are. We're red and are getting redder. The most Republican top half county is Montgomery County, which is just north of Houston, suburban, exurban kind of county. And uh, Trump got a little over 70% of the vote in that county. Utah County, which is adjacent to Salt Lake in Utah, it's where Brigham Young is, where Provo is. That's another kind of big source of votes that's very heavily Republican, almost as Republican as Montgomery is handful of other places that, that Trump won. The most Democratic big counties are actually, both of them are in Maryland, Prince George's County, which is adjacent to District Columbia, and also uh, Baltimore City. There's a Baltimore County and a Baltimore City, but Baltimore City, Biden got in high 80s in both Prince George's and in Baltimore City. Of the places that cast more than 500,000 votes, probably fairly predictable, most Democratic place. It's uh, Manhattan, which is technically New York County. That was the most Democratic of the huge, huge mega counties. But uh, anyway, it's just an interesting, I think anyway, way to go through how these places vote. And uh, and again, there's it's not like this urban versus rural thing is new, but it is, uh, again, It's I think it's getting, uh, the, the gap is getting wider when you look at it in this method. Are there any lessons for you for the campaigns, especially as we look to 2024 in terms of how they might approach these most populous versus least populous counties? Uh, I think about it in terms of some of the states. Texas is the great kind of wild card in American presidential politics because if it did actually become a bona fide swing state, and if Democrats could ever win it, Republicans would have a very difficult time putting together a an electoral college majority, they'd almost have to win the entire Midwest outside of of Illinois, which is the only 
really very solidly Democratic county in the Midwest now, but that or Democratic state in the Midwest, but uh, and but I think that looking at it this way shows like why Texas is still right of center in that you've got the most Republican big county in the whole country is in Texas, and a lot of uh, a number of uh, kind of suburban exurban places in Texas are only barely Democratic or they're still Republican. Collin and Denton counties in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Tarrant, which is where Fort Worth is. Historically, that's a county that usually votes Republican. It very barely voted for Biden in in 2020. But in order to win Texas, Democrats would have to win Tarrant, not just by a few tenths of a point, but by several points, I think, to make the math work statewide. So I think it's a good way of showing the sort of progress that Democrats in a state like Texas would continue to have to make. I think you also see that despite some of the maybe demographic similarities between certain places, that there is still some variation in how these counties vote. Waukesha County, which is the big, the big suburban Wisconsin or Milwaukee County, gotten less red over time, but it's still very red, particularly when you compare it to some of the other suburban counties in in in, in the Midwest, the industrial north, et cetera. So there's some, still some variety here in how these places vote. And, uh, and, and again, I think you also can just see the, the, the trouble for Democrats in rural America in that there's a difference between losing a place by 30 and losing it by 40. And that's what has happened as part of the reason why Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 and Biden came close to losing. It's just that the, the, it seemed like in some places that Barack Obama had hit a floor in rural America, well, it turns out he didn't hit a floor. There was way more room to fall for Democrats, and there may be more room still to, to fall for Democrats in some of those places. I thought your analysis also dovetails nicely with a new analysis by Charlie Matissian and Maddie Alexander over at Politico. And Charlie recognizes that Rhodes Cook, who is a contributing editor of the crystal ball gave him this idea to conduct analyses around college towns as a sort of a unit of analysis. But they have a new piece out on that came out on July 21st that looks at the growing divide around college towns in opposite of what you just said in terms of the trouble that Democrats are having in rural areas, the trouble that Republicans are having around the 171 independent and city counties that the American Communities Project identifies as college towns. And there, of the 171 places, 38 have flipped from Republican to Democrat since the 2000 presidential election. And seven have just flipped the other way from Democratic to Republican. And also by, and those flips have come by smaller margins. And at the same time, Democrats have grown their percentage points among the 117 of those counties, with 54 of those counties growing more Republican. It seems like a lot of the changes there are shifts in terms of population growing around college towns because of the research and economic opportunities that colleges provide, drawing in more educated voters. And then there's also, in some cases, been more 
growing youth political participation, as we've seen in in more interest, especially since the 28, 2018 president, excuse me, since the 2018 congressional election, greater youth political participation. Yeah. And in some, particularly in the Midwest, if you find, if there's like a kind of a swath of rural territory and you see a blue county these days, sometimes it's indicative of that place having a you know big university like my alma mater, high university in uh, Southeast Ohio, uh, Athens County. It used to be there were other Democratic counties in Southeast Ohio. If you look at how Jimmy Carter did in those that part of the, the state or even uh, Obama's first election, and now it's alone there. And I think of the key swing states, the place I naturally think about as, uh, as so important is, is Dane County, where Madison is in Wisconsin. It's very fast growing. It's uh, economically pretty vibrant, and it's not just the university that's driving that. You also have the state capitol there, and so that's a that that's an important uh, important driver in how Democrats are still able to win Wisconsin, despite the fact that they they're, they're they've fallen off in in so many other parts of the state and some of the rural and, and small town areas. We would really be remiss if we didn't address some of the other big news um, this first week of August, and that is that former President Donald J. Trump was indicted in connection with his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. This comes after there has been a growing federal investigation into his attempts to stay in office after losing the 2020 election. The indictment was, of course, filed by special counsel Jack Smith in the federal district court in Washington. And Trump is being charged on, excuse me, is being accused of three conspiracies, the first to defraud the United States, the second to obstruct an official proceeding, the certific- which was the certification of the Electoral College vote on January 6, 2021, and a third to deprive the people of a civil right, the right to have their votes counted. He was also charged with a fourth count of obstructing or attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. I have a number of things I want to point out on this, but Kyle, how do you think these new charges and this third indictment might impact the 2024 election? Yeah, I guess in the short term, you would not expect it to have much effect on the primary, given that we've already seen Trump indicted on two other instances and and it didn't really change the 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 trajectory of the primary, if anything, the first indictment might have even helped to, to some degree rallying the troops around around Donald Trump. If you read the indictment, it certainly brings back memories of what happened after 2020, the 2020 election, and really Trump's just horrible behavior and the fact that he, there was just all this nonsense that he was repeating about the election and that his people were repeating about the election that was like very easily disproven. There were more votes cast in Pennsylvania than our registered voters or whatever the the, the accusation is like. You can fact check these things in a few minutes and find out that they're just not true. And then it's just a question as to, is, it, is he actually legally culpable for this, which is what this, this case is going to try to figure out. I guess to me, and I'm no lawyer, I always preface it by saying this, but I guess to, even though I would say that this case is much more important or is, is more important anyway to the country as a whole than the documents cases against Trump, 
the documents case, I, I think, seems like maybe easier to prove in the sense that it's like, hey, Trump had these documents. We asked for them back. He didn't give them back. They deal with national security. He impeded our efforts to get them back. This one, I, I guess, to me, this the, the, just the, the actual legalities of it maybe seem um, uh, maybe it seems like a harder case to make. Although certainly Trump did not accept his loss and made efforts to try to basically steal the election. You know what he accused his what he accused his political enemies of trying to of trying to do. The other thing is that the wheels of justice typically turn slowly. Scott Jennings was on CNN after the indictment came out, the sort of veteran Republican operative. And he was making a point that I agreed with, which was that it really would be a service to the American voters to get these things squared away, legally speaking, before the election. But I don't know if that's actually practical in the, given how quickly or given how slowly sometimes these uh, legal, these cases will evolve here. So you've got this cloud over the president, but or the former president, but a lot of Republicans don't really see it as a cloud, at least not yet. And also you've got other, the other Republican candidates, at least the major ones, basically not really going after Trump for this. And I think it shows that they are, in, in, in some ways, they're bystanders in their own campaign because they're completely reliant on Trump falling off, but they're not willing to do the work to make Trump fall off. So therefore, they're just, they're just, in, in, in waiting to see if uh, Trump is basically no longer viable as a candidate. So it is a, it's a very strange situation. It's also one that you go back to the impeachment, the second impeachment of Trump over his activities for Jan- after January 6th. To me, that was the appropriate venue to basically convict him and prevent him from running again. But for Republican senators, including uh, uh, Mitch McConnell decided they didn't want to do that. And so here we are with, with Trump as still essentially the leader of the Republican Party. Uh, although Mitch McConnell did say, I believe, in February of 2021, that accountability would be coming. Certainly, this indictment seems like part of that attempt. And I think another important thing to point out is how much of the groundwork for this indictment was laid by the January 6th committee. Something that does seem different about this indictment versus the others is that there is only one defendant that's actually named. So it's the United States versus Trump. And that might help speed this trial along relative to some of the others. And also that there is no insurrection charge, which would have been a more, my understanding is, would have made would have complicated the trial and dragged it out and the key charges go to a lot of what the January 6th committee focused on which was attempting to overturn the election i think the implications of that are this indictment this trial could come before some of the others that that trump is facing and clearly they want to move this there's also an interesting analysis that looks at sort of Trump's fundraising efforts. And it it does seem that the more times he's indicted, there are diminishing returns on his ability to fundraise on the indictments. So that could be a positive sign that, that the charges are being taken more seriously. It could also just mean that people are tuning out. Uh, But Nathaniel Rakich also did a piece this week that used some YouGov Yahoo News um, survey 
that does show that that the share of registered voters who believe each allegation was serious is has been increasing. And the most serious was the ones related to this indictment, which is conspiring to overturn the results of the presidential election. And 71 percent of survey respondents in that poll did think it was a serious crime. I think obviously there's a lot of wait and see. And I also want to tie in something that friend of the podcast and contributor to the crystal ball, Natalie Jackson, pointed out in her national journal column, maybe we need to focus less on on the horse race because that's not changing with Trump still in front. Dig a little bit deeper into these surveys to get a better sense of where people are and what's happening in this election. I think there's this idea out there. You suggest this from polling if you wanted to and say that Oh, actually, Trump is stronger now than he was in 2020 and 2016 because this is what the polls say. And I just like fundamentally just don't believe that. I just don't think that would be the case given all of the baggage that Trump has accumulated. I think that's something that Republican voters should be thinking about, whether, again, whether they, they care or not. Look, I, I could also see from a Republican perspective just being like, hey, people like you thought Trump was going to lose in 2016 and he won anyway. So why should we, why should we believe that? And why should we? go with somebody else. But I guess it's possible that by the time we got to the November election, more of the focus would be on Biden and Biden's problems. And like how I think 2016 ended, it was more of a focus on Clinton at the end. But I do think that certainly I think Democrats believe that the January, January 6th is a potent argument they could use against Trump. And this allows them to keep making it. And I think that you'd have if you'd have this ongoing trial going on while Trump became the nominee, I just have to think that, that would hurt him and it would keep the focus more on Trump's warts than Biden's warts. Again, there's a lot to, to develop here, but we do still have some time before the voting starts for the primary in, in mid-January. Although, what are the other Republican candidates going to do with the time that they have? And so far, they haven't been using it in a way that's been all that productive for them. Maybe Trump falls off some between now and then, but his position is still pretty good. So it's just, it's, it just seems crazy to think that here we have this president, this former president has been indicted a few times and yet doesn't seem to be impeding his ability to win the nomination at all. So it's just wild. It feels like watching a train wreck as it happens. It also goes to, this is part of the, what I've seen as a criticism of this indictment that, oh, Trump was basically just using his first amendment rights to lie about the election which of course he was, but also that he pretty clearly took pact of states. He was trying to get his vice president essentially to commit fraud or to- Right. And several governors. And to, yeah, to that, that famous conver conversation with Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state in Georgia, in which it looks like Trump's probably going to be indicted in Georgia too for the sort of same sort of thing. Find me the vote. It's, hey, basically commit fraud on my behalf. So, so it's, it's, it, and Trump, he says and does so many silly things that I think it's easy to just brush it off and say, oh, that's just Trump being Trump or whatever. But there are, uh, there's potential illegal behavior here, which is what this case is, is getting at. I don't know if any of these indictments are going to succeed, but I think they, I'm sure that the special counsel and the people around him thought long and hard about whether to bring this or not. Of course, supporters and Trump himself will say that this is an act of trying to suppress political opposition by the sitting government. But also, in, there, there are real costs in a real way 
to to these indictments and that he's going to have to take time from campaigning and other things to actually show up at hearings and the trial as well. I guess you could say, oh, this is unprecedented behavior by the Justice Department against the former president. But like Trump has engaged in unprecedented right. behavior. You know, I mean, again, it's not like, it's not like this stuff is all made up. Now, again, whether you get a conviction or not is a different story. It's just this sort of widely accepted view amongst Republicans. This stuff is just made up out of whole cloth. And it's just not the case. If you choose to nominate someone like this as your presidential nominee or elected president or whatever, there are, are consequences to the way he's going to behave. So it's just, it, it, it's almost like there's so many people on the Republican side who it's almost like they benefit from nominating someone outside the norm because all they want to do is complain about the system and how unfair it is. Nominate <laughs> someone who is like this, the system has to respond to him in ways that they might not have to, to other people who don't deviate from accepted behavior the way that this guy does. But I guess it gives them something to complain about, but it also is risky from the perspective of if you're a Republican and you just want to win the presidency back in 2024. I still think they'd be better off going with, with somebody else, regardless of what, what you think about Trump's behavior and whatnot. This is obviously something that we will continue to monitor and will be relevant in the 2024 election. But thank you, Kyle, for sharing your new analyses as well this week. Thanks, Kara. Listeners, you can find links to the dueling political halves of the United States on the crystal ball in the episode notes. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.